Let's pray together. Father, help us to live what we've just sung. Help us to believe that there is a home. There is a fair and happy land where your people sing your praise and do the work that you've given to them with gladness, with rest. And Lord, we pray that to the extent that we're able, we would be able to live as though we are there even now. And Lord, help us to strive to enter that rest. We pray that you would cause our hearts to be soft and help us to be wise and understanding and vigilant that no one might take us captive with empty words and hollow deceit. So we commit ourselves to you now, Lord, and ask that you would speak to us by your word, in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, and we will be picking up in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 today. And as you turn there, I would invite you to imagine what life in the Garden of Eden, unfallen, untempted, might have been like. Life in the Garden of Eden, prior to the entrance of sin in the world, without a tempter there to lead you into sin and get you cast out. What would life have been like? I think there would have been work. There would have been rest. There would have been God, and that would have been everything. Fellowship with uh, the ones that God give, get, had given that, that you might not be alone. Fulfillment satisfaction, and I think the whole thing would be characterized by words like shalom and completeness and fullness. Is it possible? I think at some level all of us are asking this question and striving within ourselves. Is it possible to get back there? Is it possible to get back into God's presence, to get back into paradise? And, and, you know, sometimes I'll ask uh, children in the congregation to draw a picture uh, while I preach of something that I'm preaching about. And so maybe uh, the kids in the room can be drawing their picture of the Garden of Eden. But I would ask the adults, if you were to draw a picture of what your experience in the garden would look like, what would, what would be in that picture? Well, I think the most important thing for all of us to have in that picture is the high priest who takes us home. And in some ways, that's like a tagline for the whole book of Hebrews. Right at the outset, Hebrews 1.3, uh, the author speaks of how he, he made purification for sins. And then by the end of chapter 2, he's, he's into the way that, that Christ became like his brothers, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And now in this section that we're in, in Hebrews 3 and 4, there is a contrast between Jesus and and people like Moses and Joshua. But I think the main point of this contrast is that whereas neither Moses nor Joshua got people into the promised land or gave them a fullness and a, and a complete realization of rest, that's what the Lord Jesus gives to his people. So in a way, the Lord Jesus is the high priest who takes us home. And as we look at, at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15, through chapter 4, verse 7 this morning, 
we will see the way that the author urges, the author of Hebrews urges his audience to keep soft hearts. So this is the big idea, I think, of this passage. I think the author wants us to keep soft hearts. He says, do not harden your heart. And, and I think a, a soft heart would be a thankful, joyful heart that is submissive to the scripture, that is expectant of, of what God is going to do, what God has promised to do, a heart that is believing and trusting the Lord. So keep a soft heart that believes and obeys that you might rest now and in the future. I think that's the big idea of this section that we're looking at. Keep a soft heart that believes and obeys that you might rest now and in the future. As we've been doing, uh, I want to summarize the, the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews to this point. And so if you've been here, you know that we've been talking about how in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in a, a, a wrinkle here that I began to allude to last year, uh, last, not last year, two weeks ago when we were last together in Hebrews. Uh, I want to throw in a wrinkle and, and suggest to you that, that these first four chapters of Hebrew form two broad chiastic structures. And, and the first one in, in chapters 1 and 2 uh, it, it begins and ends with priesthood. 1-3, having made purification for sins. 2-10 through 18, uh, he became like his brothers, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So beginning and end, 1-1-4, God has spoken in his son, our high priest. 2-10 through 18, he became like us to be our priest. And then 1-5 through 14, the son is greater than the angels. And all these references from the Old Testament are brought to bear. This string of pearls, quotations from the Old Testament all asserting the superiority of the Lord Jesus over the angels because God spoke the old covenant or he, he, he delivered the old covenant revelation to the prophets through the angels and now he's delivered the new covenant revelation through the son who is greater than the angels. And then corresponding to that, 2, 5 through 9, uh, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come but to the son. So this contrast between Jesus and the angels, it's 1, 5 through 14, and 2, 5 through 9. And then the central section there, 2, 1 through 4, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So all of this is driving at, we have got to receive the instruction of the new covenant. We have got to hold on to what God has given us in this new covenant revelation. So just to summarize that, and in what I'm about to do, I'm going to give you the first and last part, second and second to last part, and then center, give the, la the middle part last. God has given new covenant revelation in his son who was made like his brothers to be their high priest who is greater than the angels to whom the world to come has been suggest, su subjected. So we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's chapters 1 and 2. Now, chapters 3 and 4, um, the author starts in 3, 1 through 6 and, and you can see there that, that statement in, in verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So there's a sense in which 3, 1 through 6 is all about the greater glory of the Lord Jesus than Moses. But let me draw your attention to the beginning of, verse, of, of this section in 3, 1, where he speaks of how we're to, to uh, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then look over at chapter 4, verse 14, where he, since, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
So this language of high priest and confession is going to bracket chapters 3 and 4. And so uh, in 3, 1 through 6, he's saying, consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession, and, and hold fast your boldness, 3, 6. He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, and that word confidence is boldness, and then that, that's going to be matched by 4, 14 through 16, where essentially he says, because of the great high priest, hold fast to the confession and draw near with boldness. Look at 4.16, let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace. So that's the outer bracket. Um, the intersection, we looked at the first, uh, the second part of this in 3.6 through 14 two weeks ago. And essentially what the author says there is that the wilderness generation did not enter into God's rest. And we, when we looked at that passage in 3.6 through 14, we saw why they did not enter into God's rest because of unbelief, because of disobedience. And, and that's going to correspond to 4, 8 through 13, where Joshua, that would be the conquest generation, Joshua leads the people into the land. They take the land, but Joshua does not give the people the Edenic Sabbath rest that awaits God's people once Christ has come. You know, at the end of Hebrews 11, the author says that, uh, that those old covenant saints, they, they are uh, awaiting what God has promised because they're not going to be perfected apart from us. And, and that Edenic Sabbath rest, I think, is what they did not yet, they have not yet received. They will receive it with us. Uh, the middle of this section of Hebrews chapter 3 is what we're looking at today, 3.15 through 4.7. And here, I think the big idea is there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. So again, to summarize uh, with the first and the last part, the second and the second to last, and then the middle part last, we want to consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession, and because of him, hold fast and draw near with boldness. Because the wilderness generation did not enter because of unbelief and disobedience. And Joshua's conquest generation did not experience the realization of new creation, Edenic Sabbath rest. But those who hear his voice today and believe enter that rest. So I think these are, this is the flow of thought that we're working with. And today we're going to look at Hebrews 3.15 through 4.7. And the first thing I want to do do is just draw your attention to the way that in 3.15, the author says, as it is said, and now he's going to, to reference again Psalm 95.7, and, and just to draw your, your attention up to verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews 3, there he gives you Psalm 95.7 through 11. And then he had begun to work through that passage. It's almost like the author is doing expository preaching. He had begun to work through it in 3.12 through 14, and now he's going to continue his exposition of Psalm 95, beginning in verse 15. Glance over at 4.7, and note there how again he quotes Psalm 95.7. So I'm suggesting, the reason I'm doing this unit of text, 3.15 through 4.7, is because I think the author means to bracket this unit of thought by these two quotations of Psalm 95.7. So, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, he writes, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, 
Now, this is a remarkable thing that the author of Hebrews is doing. Because I think this author would envision his letter being read aloud in a gathered congregation like this. In fact, uh, at the end of the letter, he will refer to the book as a word of exhortation. And as, I've, uh, as I think in our first sermon on Hebrews, I mentioned this, that's the phrase used to describe the sermon that Paul is, is invited to preach in Acts chapter 13. They, they invite Paul, they say, if you have a word of exhortation, come and deliver it. And then the author of Hebrews describes this book as a word of exhortation. So it's like a sermon. So as he preaches his sermon, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, which is to say, God is speaking. God is speaking. I mean, this is an audacious thing for a man to write. God is speaking in the words that I have written that are being announced in your hearing in the congregation. So I think the author of Hebrews knows that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is writing scripture. He says, today, if you hear his voice, quoting Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And we're, we're, we're about to read about what rebellion he has in mind. He's going to exposit this for us in 3, 16 through 19. But in a way, he's already begun to exposit this, and he's already begun to warn against what can happen as your heart can become hardened. So he says in 3.16, For who were those who heard? Now, you can see what he's doing. He, he's, he's saying, you're hearing the word. And that, that old covenant wilderness generation, they heard the word. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? So the author is drawing the attention of his audience to the way that that generation that Moses brought out of the wilderness, they heard the word of God. And what they should have done, the way that they should have responded, would be something along these lines. God has told us that land is ours. You know, I'm thinking in terms of Numbers 14 here because the author in various ways indicates that that's what he has in view. The way that the spies brought back the, the bad report. God has given us that land. God has told us to go and take that land. Nothing can stop God. That's the way they should have responded. God got us out of Egypt. We had no power to overcome Pharaoh. God got us through the Red Sea. We had no power to get through the Red Sea. God has told us that land is ours. That land is ours. Big people, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. No matter. That's our land. Because our God is God. This is the way they should have responded. By not responding that way, the author says they have rebelled. Rebelled. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? He says, was it, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Now, the author is preaching this sermon in a church of professing believers. So, I think he expects that most of his audience will have experienced salvation. So there's a parallel here, right? Because the generation that left Egypt led by Moses, they experienced the Passover. They were delivered, delivered from slavery, brought out into freedom. And in the same way, believers have been, have been delivered from slavery to sin experienced the fulfillment of the Passover and the exodus from Egypt, and now brought out, and the author is saying, don't be like that wilderness generation. 
that, that experienced salvation to some degree, but they didn't have changed hearts. Their hearts were hardened. Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? On that occasion there in Numbers 14, the Lord declared, none of these people who have seen what I have done will enter into the land of promise. Who was he, with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? How did they sin? They sinned by unbelief. They sinned by not believing that God would give them the land. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? They did not enter the land of promise. They died outside the land. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And, and the, the oath that he has in mind, we saw it in 311, the Lord says in Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath. And then the, the translator puts this into nice, smooth English. But literally, the text says, if they ever enter my rest. And it's as though the Lord is saying something like, if they enter into my rest, then what you do with those animals when you make an oath, you cut the thing in half and then you walk through the pieces, may that be done to, to me if they enter my rest. That's how the Lord responds to this rebellious, sinful, disobedient, unbelieving wilderness generation. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Go take the land. We can't take the land. Disobedience. Do you, you see the, the equation between unbelief and disobedience? Look at, look at the next verse. Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Go take the land. It's too much for us. Disobedience. Unbelief. Rebellion is what that is. Now, look at that phrase there in verse 16. Who were those who heard? In, in chapter 4, verse 2, the author is going to refer to good news coming to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And that phrase at the end of verse 2 there, those who listened is very similar to that phrase in 4.16, those who heard. In fact, the, the word is translated differently, heard in one case, listened in the other, but it's the same Greek term. So I would, I would invite you to consider right now, are you hearing in a way that leads to rebellion? Or are you hearing in a way that would be described as listening? Listening and, and being united by faith with others who are listening. And, and I want to I bring together in, in a, a brief space the characteristics of what it looks like to have a hardened heart. 3.15 there, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What does it look like to harden your heart? From what the author says in 3.16 through 19... It looks like hearing and then rebelling, provoking, disobeying, and not believing. And that results in exclusion. It results in God taking an oath that such people will not enter into his rest. Um, in our culture, 
there is a way of thinking about the world that, that is washing over us. In fact, this week I listened to a podcast entitled The Marxification of Education. And, and, and the, the, the guy doing the podcast, James Lindsay, was talking about the way that these Marxists have really taken over the whole uh, public education school system, the teachers' colleges, and they have pervaded our school system with this, this critical, these critical approaches that are informed by critical theory, which is just Marxism, uh, and, and, and they're now pushing it all through the, the schools. And, and the fundamental root component of this is a, a perspective, a disposition to radically criticize everything. You're critiquing, you're, 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 you're adopting a negative perspective, and that will lead to a hardened heart. Because all of that is the opposite of things like gratitude, joy, submission to God's word, an expectant posture that God will do what he's promised, a trust for God who is the authority in your life. Marxism and critical theory will teach you exactly how to have a hardened heart, and they will produce in you a hardened heart. You can, you can count on it. And then look at the people that you know that have adopted Marxism and ask yourself, is that a joyful person? Is that a thankful person? Is that a positive person? In fact, as I was listening to this, this podcast, um, James Lindsay was suggesting that Marxism should be regarded as a religion. He was saying this, is, this has all the features of a cult religion, and he said, uh, really, by, by claiming to, to have the, a whole-scale explanation for the world and a glimpse into uh, the kingdom of God, he said, really, it's, it's Gnostic. And he says, if you don't know what Gnosticism is, it's the snake in the garden. And, and you start thinking about what the snake in the garden did with Adam and Eve, what was he trying to provoke in them? Not gratitude, not joy, not thankfulness for the abundant creation that God had put them in and blessed them with. So I want to urge you to, to guard yourself against a hardened heart and to be vigilant to protect yourself against the ways of thinking in our culture that would lead you to mainly evaluate your life in the, in the, in the a, a, a sort of structure that says, well, I am being oppressed by this or that person. As, as a female, I'm oppressed by the fact that there are males. As a, as a wife, I'm, a, I'm oppressed by the fact that I have to be in a marriage. As an employee, I'm oppressed by the fact that I've got an employer, and on and on it goes. And you can apply it to everything as whatever. The, ca the categories multiply. It will not lead to gratitude. It will not lead to a soft heart. It will lead to a hardened heart. And I would urge you to guard yourself against it in the same way that the author of Hebrews does here in Hebrews 4.1. Look at what he writes. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, let me just make explicit at this point that the rest that he's talking about entering is not in context here something like a weekly observance of Sunday as like the Sabbath, right? If the author of Hebrews was talking about a, a particular day of the week, I think he would spell that out. And if the author of Hebrews meant for us to conclude that everything that the Jewish people did on the, the seventh day of the week, Saturday, 
we are now to roll that over onto the first day of the week and do that on the first day of the week, I think he would articulate those ideas. So what I'm telling you is I don't think that's what the author is doing. Rather, when he talks about entering the rest, it's clear in Psalm 95 that the rest the people of Israel were not allowed to enter was the land of promise. And I think the way the author is, is, is working here is you have, he's about to talk about the rest that God uh, engaged in once he'd completed creation. So you've got this uh, cre original creation rest, Genesis 2. And then you have this land of promise rest that is held out to the people of Israel, which the wilderness generation is not allowed to enter. And then the author is going to pick up the fact here in chapter 4 that because David, who came after Moses, uh, David says in, in Psalm 95, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Uh, da David is suggesting people in his generation can enter into the rest. And then the author is going to say, look, Joshua didn't give them this rest. So he's working with this timeline and, and these these moments of rest that are the creation rest, the land of promise rest, I think the rest that believers have now in, in our life experience, and then the in anticipated new creation, new heaven and earth, rest in the fulfillment of the Garden of Eden. I think that's the way the author is, is operating here. So in 4.1, when he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, he's he's responding to Psalm 95, saying, don't be like the wilderness generation who wasn't allowed to enter the rest. Don't harden your hearts so that you can enter the rest. I think that's how he's drawing out uh, the logic of Psalm 95. So what does he tell his audience to do in 4.1? While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, so we respond to the fact that the wilderness generation was not allowed to enter and the fact that the promise of entering still stands, we respond to that with fear. What kind of fear? I appreciated uh, what Tom Schreiner says about this. He says, this is the fear of a mountain climber checking his gear. You know, if, you, if you're going to go up the, a sheer face and, and, and you're going to stay alive, you're going to make sure that all your ropes are solid. You're going to make sure that all of your, your carabiners are sound. None of them are rusted. None of them are about to break. You're going to check all that gear because you're afraid of dying. And in the same way, we're, we're engaged in a great task. It's like we're trying to climb a great mountain. We're trying to carry out the Great Commission. We're, we're trying to, to, to strive for all that the Lord has called us to do. And we want to be like the mountain climber, checking his gear, making sure, because we're afraid, making sure that we can make the climb. That's the kind of fear I think the author is calling his audience to. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, to reach the rest. For, verse 2, good news came to us just as to them. And that phrase, good news, is gospel. The, the, the good news of the gospel came to the author of Hebrews' audience in the form, as he says in, in 2, uh, 3, in the form that it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. The message of what Christ did, the message of what he accomplished, his death 
and resurrection for our salvation, his ascension to the right hand, his outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The, message, the good news came to us, and then he says, just as to them. And he's speaking of the way that the wilderness generation had the promise that God was going to take them into the land of promise. The promise that God was going to give them the kingdom in that land of promise. But then he says there in verse 2, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And I would, I would ask you today, are you united by faith with those who listen? You can look around you and see people who are characterized by lives that are like, I'm listening to the word of God. I'm responding to the word of God. I'm I, I want to fear God. They're, they're all in. Are you with them? Are you united to them by faith? And if you say to me, what does that look like? What does it look like to be united by faith with those who listen? It looks like Rahab. Do you remember that story in Joshua chapter 2? You've got this inhabitant of Jericho, Rahab, this woman who's a prostitute living in the walls. And the, the, the people of Israel come to, the spies from Israel, they come to her home. And she tells them the story. She's heard the gospel. The good news came to her. And she tells them, we heard all about what your God did to the gods of Egypt. And then she takes their side against her contemporaries, against her kinspeople, against the inhabitants of Jericho. She says to those people of Israel, you do steadfast love with me and I'll do steadfast love with you. That's what, they, they render it do kindness, but it's the word chesed in Hebrew. So, so Rahab is an example of what it looks like to hear the word and to listen to it and then respond in faith and obedience. That's what it looks like. So if you're, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I still don't know what to do. Come talk to me or, or talk to somebody around you that's listening. We would love to tell you about what it looks like to follow Jesus and specifically what it looks like to turn away from the false religions of our culture and to put your faith in the living God. And to turn away from all these attempts to justify sin that are all around us. We are pervaded. I mean, yesterday I was at my, my 11-year-old daughter's basketball game. And, and someone from collegiate school had a collegiate gay pride t-shirt on. That, that is, that is a, like a celebration of sin is what that is. That, that is not righteousness. But our culture is saying that's what righteousness looks like. And, and if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say, no, that's not righteousness. That's actually that's actually under uh, God's condemnation. And there's, there's only one moral way to, to, to live, and it's the way the Bible describes, and you're going to have to turn away from all these attempts to justify sin and give yourself to the instruction of the living God and trust the Lord Jesus. Look again at 4.2 where he says, The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3, For we who have believed... Enter that rest. Now, I think what he's saying is along the lines of what John says in John 17, 3. You know that great verse? The Lord Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That, I think that's what, exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about. If you know God in Christ, you have eternal life now in anticipation of the resurrection from the dead. And I think the author of Hebrews essentially is saying something like, if you know God and you walk in accordance with the scriptures, 
almost like being in the Garden of Eden. But of course it's not. It's a fallen world. But it's almost like walking with God in the cool of the day as you abide in Christ. So I think the author is saying something like, we who have believed, we've entered that rest, and our lives are characterized by a a shalom kind of Edenic life now in anticipation of the future. We who have believed enter that rest as he has said, and here he references this passage again, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he's picking up that idea of rest, and I think his point of quoting that text again is saying, I'm getting the idea of rest from this verse in Psalm 95. And now he's going to move from that into God's creation rest in the middle of verse 3 there. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's referencing the way that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And then verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And we talked when we were in Genesis 1 and 2 of the way that that. At creation, it's as though God is the great king of all the world, and he's constructed his cosmic palace, his cosmic temple, and then what kings do in the ancient Near East once they've built their, their, their palace is they take up rest, rest within the place that they've built as their dwelling place. And I think that's the imagery, and that's the idea. God has not grown tired by the work of creation. He, he's not in any way wearied by what he has done. He has completed his work. And because his work is done, he takes up rest in his dwelling place. And and that fullness of God in the Garden of Eden, walking there with his people in in the cool of the day, I think is what the author wants to hold out to his audience. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Uh, I would suggest to you that those words in verse 4 are the center of this unit. And note how on either side, there are these quotations from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, 11. Look at the next verse in verse 5. And again in this passage, Psalm 95, 11, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So he quotes Psalm 95, 11 before and after the reference to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And then look at what he does next in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news, and you can see how this, this corresponds to what he said in 4 1 through 3. 4 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them. So, Four, six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Some people are going to get in. Some people are going to dwell with God in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth. And since that's the case, the author says, and, continue in verse 6, those who formerly received the good news, the wilderness generation, failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, verse 7, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, In the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So in this unit, I think the big idea is 
Keep a soft heart. Don't let your heart be hardened. There are all kinds of things in our lives that could, that could harden our hearts, aren't they? Aren't there? Things don't go the way that we want them to go. We try to walk in faithfulness. We try to walk in obedience. And God doesn't give us what we're looking for. Whether that's a certain person wanting to marry us or indeed us getting married or whether that's our kids, we want them to act a certain way and they don't or whether that's we want certain things to happen in our, in our, our vocation, our calling, our work and it doesn't. All kinds of things that could result in a hardened heart. Maybe, maybe people don't respect us the way we would like to be respected. All kinds of things could result in a hardened heart. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't let your heart grow hard. Cultivate gratitude. Cultivate joy. Cultivate a submissive, expectant, believing, trusting disposition toward the Lord that you might rest now and in the future. Before we close, let me just briefly uh, allude again to, I think, the corresponding section to this passage over at the end of the book. It's, it's Hebrews chapter 11. So you've got the wilderness generation that did not, by faith, receive the things that are promised. And then listen to these, these words about, for instance, Abraham and in Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's, I think, the, the realization of rest. 11.13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They didn't get what they were looking for in their lives, but they kept soft hearts, and they kept trusting, and they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And the high priest is the one who's going to take us home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with high thoughts of him, we pray that you would make us confident that he will not only save his people, he will get his people all the way to the land of promise, all the way to the promised rest. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to cut away calluses that may have formed on our hearts. Lord, make us soft toward you. Make us receptive to your words. Make us eager to embrace your teaching and in just the way that the author of Hebrews calls us to, Lord, enable us to fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. Lord, we ask that you would do all this for the glory of Christ. We want to be among that great cloud of witnesses, the innumerable angels in festal array in the new Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, waving the palm branches, crying out Hosanna, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us be among that great throng, lifting our voices in praise of the Lord Christ. We ask this for your glory by the Spirit. Amen.